I want to talk to you this morning about sacrifice and surrender. What exactly is sacrifice and surrender? What part did it play in the life of an old covenant believer? And what part do they play now in the life of a new covenant believer? Well, I looked up the word sacrifice in the Webster's 1828 dictionary and had two definitions. The first one I have for you says this, to offer to God in homage or worship by killing and consuming as victims on the altar in an effort to make atonement for sin or to procure favor or to express thankfulness, such as to sacrifice an ox or a lamb. The word sacrifice in scripture almost always refers to the killing of an animal and then presenting it to God. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for sacrifice is zibak. According to the Strong's, it means properly to slaughter. That is the flesh of the animal. By implication, it is a sacrifice. It can refer to either the victim, the thing slaughtered, or to the act of offering the sacrifice. There are a couple of different Hebrew words that are translated into English as sacrifice, but they are differentiated by the addition of explanatory words such as sacrifice of praise. That's actually an entirely different word, and the word for slaughter isn't in that word. The phrase sacrifice of praise is simply one different Hebrew word, and it's not related at all <laughs> to slaughter, but it is related to worship. Another word that is often added to the word sacrifice is the word thanksgiving. And according to the Strong's, it's the Hebrew word tudah, which is often translated as thanksgiving, but also includes the idea of a slaughtered animal. Properly, it refers to an extension of the hand, that is by implication an avowal, a public declaration, or usually adoration. It can specifically be used as a choir of worshipers <laughs> and includes the idea of confession, sacrifice of praise, praise, thanksgiving, and thanksgiving offering. All of those are considered to be a sacrifice of worship. In other words, it's offering worship. I love the fact that even in the Old Covenant, the extension of hands was part of worship. It was publicly displaying how you felt about God. <laughs> the root word of todah is a good word. It's the word yada, and it includes the idea of worshiping with extended hands. The extended hands also came from the idea of, of putting your hand on a lamb and then confessing your sin over the lamb and the lamb taking your sin. So that's why the extended hands is always a sign of worship. All of these words express the concept of worship, of drawing close to God by means of a sacrifice. The second definition from Webster's 1828 is this. Sacrifice means to destroy, surrender, or suffer to be lost for the sake of obtaining something. And I added, usually something considered to be more valuable than the thing surrendered or lost. We understand that we will surrender time to get money. We'll give one thing in preference of another. And the idea of that is to sacrifice. I wanted you to see that according to the Webster's 1828 dictionary, the words sacrifice and surrender are related and can basically mean the same thing. They both refer to something given to God as a means of drawing close to God 
by atoning for sin or as a mean of gaining God's favor or to express thankfulness and praise. Now, what's interesting is the English word surrender is not anywhere in the King James Version of the Bible. <laughs> Some of the newer translations will use the word, but the King James does not use the word surrender, Old or New Testament. Yet in Christendom, you do hear a lot about the power of surrender. <laughs> Over the years, I have heard many messages about surrendering to God so that God will be pleased with you and empower you to conquer. All you need to do is surrender. You've got to surrender your will. You've got to surrender your money. You've got to surrender your promises, just like Abraham, in order to prove to God that you are faithful and blessable. This doesn't sound like New Covenant, does it? <laughs> no, it doesn't. Unfortunately, I used to believe all of this. I believed I had to prove that I was faithful to God. I had to prove and demonstrate my love for God to be happy with me. I had to surrender and sacrifice. At one point in my life, before I understood grace, I even put Mark Testament on the altar. <laughs> Because God had said, I've chosen him for you. And if you are going to be faithful like Abraham, you've got to put your promise on that altar and sacrifice it. So I was like, okay, I don't understand this. You can have him. He's yours anyway. He's not mine. <laughs> Wrong thinking. The word surrender, according to the Webster's 1828, means this. To yield to the power of another. Now that's good. That is a good interpretation of surrender to yield to a power of another. However, it doesn't stop with that. To give or deliver up possession upon compulsion or demand, such as to surrender one's person to an enemy. In other words, you do this because you have no alternative. You surrender under compulsion, which means against your will, to an enemy. We understand the white flag of surrender. People don't give a white flag of surrender because they want to. They do it because they have no other choice. Does that sound like God? No, it doesn't. But so much of the body of Christ has this surrender and sacrifice understanding. It comes from the old covenant. It doesn't come from the new. This is not a good way of seeing God, especially as a believer. I understand unbelievers thinking God is mad and that God demands sacrifice, you do this, you march to this drum, or else. I understand unbelievers, because it is natural for unbelievers to think God is mad and mean. All over the world, in different faiths, people are giving food sacrifices, or offering some kind of animal, because it is to atone for their sin or to change the mind of their God because their God must be mad because bad things are happening. So much of the church says COVID-19, judgment of God. No, no judgment. That's not who God is. But so much of the church still believes that's exactly who he is. God is not our enemy. <laughs> He's our father. He's our savior. He's our life, and he's our sacrifice. We can see this truth in the story of Abraham offering Isaac. 
God told Abraham that he wanted him to offer his son Isaac as a burnt offering. A burnt offering was indicative of representing the giving of your entire self to God. The offering was entirely devoted to God and was completely burnt to a crisp, so to speak, because nobody could eat of it. It was completely given over to God. In other words, there wouldn't be anything left for you. It was entirely devoted to God. Now, we know that this whole test of Abraham's faith was a prophetic picture of what would actually happen many years later. On the very same mountain, Yahweh Yerah, or Jehovah Jireh, however you like to pronounce it, he would provide himself a lamb. We see this in Genesis 22, beginning with verse 5. Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the donkey. <laughs> I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon his son Isaac. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Obviously they had done this before. And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. So they went, both of them, together. This is one of my favorite stories from the Old Testament because of how absolutely obvious it is that this is a prophetic picture of how our Heavenly Father provided Jesus, His Son, as the sacrificial lamb, as a substitute for all of mankind. We know that God stops Abraham from killing Isaac, and then he supplies Abraham with a substitute. God provided himself representatively as a ram that was caught in the thicket because Isaac's life was not an acceptable sacrifice for sin. Isaac was infected with the same terminal disease that everybody else had. He was a sinner. <laughs> And that is one of the reasons that God prohibited the Israelites from ever participating in human sacrifice. Because that kind of sacrifice did not have the power to take away the curse of sin and death. But you know why God had to tell them not to do that? Because they would come up with the idea of doing that. That I will prove to you how much I love you. I will give you my child. Now I completely expect your favor because I have given you the most precious thing I have. That's pagan thinking. <laughs> but so much of the church has the same kind of thinking. Now, what I want you to really see here is that Isaac was not a suitable sacrifice, even though he was willing. Isaac voluntarily let his father tie him up and put him on top of the altar, went right along with him. <laughs> and even though God originally required the sacrifice, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> Why did God say, I want you to do this, but now I'm going to stop you from doing it? God was trying to impart to Abraham a different image of who God was. Abraham didn't have a Bible, Old Testament or new. <laughs> How did Abraham know what God was like? God had to demonstrate it to him. God had to give him the opportunity to get to know him. He didn't know God didn't want 
human sacrifice. He didn't realize that that was something that God would not approve of. God only asked him to do this because Abraham already thought this was the ultimate sacrifice because all of his culture thought, this is the evidence, this is the proof that I am totally devoted to this God. Now, this is important to understand because many believers are trying, like Isaac, to lay down their lives <laughs> in total commitment as a way of making themselves acceptable to God. They are surrendering themselves, like Abraham, to what they believe is God's will as a means of making themselves pleasing to God. They have equated the idea with this idea of, I will be a sacrifice. You ever put your hand on your head and go, oh, I'm such a sacrifice? <laughs> no. <laughs> but there's a lot of the Christian church who are calling people to become sacrifices. <laughs> Come on, the power to conquer is the power of surrender. Do you know how many times I was rededicated so that I could be right with God again? Just come and rededicate your life, start again. We don't find that anywhere in Scripture. Not in the Old Testament and not in the New. But yet, a whole bunch of the church is doing exactly that. You must sacrifice. You must be a sacrifice. You must surrender your life. God is not my enemy. I do not need to surrender to him. He is not my enemy. Now, do I need to yield to him? Yes. Is it easy to yield to love? Yeah. Is it a sacrifice to be loved? No. <laughs> so much of the church, this is what they're preaching to believers. Come on, make yourself acceptable and pleasing to the Father. Let's see these, this altar get filled. You need to rededicate. That'll give you the power and the strength to do what he's called you to do. No. We got no power. We got no strength. <laughs> we cannot do anything on our own. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. Is it our commitment to God that makes us acceptable and pleasing to God? No. <laughs> Is it our monetary sacrifices of tithes and offerings that makes us blessable? No. Is it our surrender to what we believe is God's will for our life that brings us favor? No. <laughs> what God was actually looking for from Abraham was faith. But even more than faith, trust. I found a really good explanation of the difference between faith and trust on a website from the Institute of Creation Research, and I have it for you. Many believers today often confuse having faith in God with trusting in God. Faith is a noun. That means it's a thing. It is something you have or possess. It's a substance or an evidence of things both hoped for and not seen. Faith in God is the confident belief that he is the sovereign creator of all things and that he can and will do what he claims. Trust, on the other hand, is a verb. It is something you do. It is something you act upon. Faith always comes first, but trust is never guaranteed. It is a willful choice, a deliberate action, and can only grow out of your faith. So trust in God is what causes us to act on what we believe. 
This particular website also used the story of Charles Blondin to demonstrate the difference between believing and trusting. I've told the story of Charles Blondin before. He was a tightrope walker who never in his whole career ever fell off of a tightrope. Not once. And he had crossed the Gulf at Niagara Falls walking on his tightrope. And one of his favorite things to do was to ask his audience if after seeing him cross the Gulf, if they believed he could do it again with a wheelbarrow. And of course, everyone said, well, of course you can, you just did it. So he asked for a volunteer to get in the wheelbarrow. You really believe I can do this? You believe I can cross safely? Yeah, absolutely, you go right ahead. You wanna get in my wheelbarrow? No, thank you. <laughs> belief in his ability, belief because he's already done it, but do I trust him to get me across the gulf safely? No. <laughs> you see, that's the difference between believing and trusting. Trusting says, I will get in your bucket. <laughs> I will trust you to take me across. Not just because I've seen you do it, but because I know you never fall. You trust not only in his ability, but in the fact that he doesn't fail. So trust says, I act on what I believe. This is a really important thing about receiving from God. A lot of times Christians will say, I believe I receive my healing. That's great. That's great. But have you put your butt in the bucket yet? Have you acted on what you believe he said? That's how I received my healing. I had been standing. I believe I receive, I believe I receive. And then one day it's like, God, how do I get it? <laughs> I know I got it, but I don't have it. He said, make a demand. Act on what you believe is yours. And so the action God gave me was to agree in prayer with my pastor. And I knew going up there, I was picking up my package. <laughs> I knew that I knew because God told me. And so when we act on what God tells us, see, that's trust. Tithing is another good example. When God taught me about giving, he, of course, used tithing. That's what my church taught me, tithe. When you don't have any money, it's really easy because <laughs> there's nothing to give. <laughs> and at the time, I had no money. But when God started to show me that whatever I gave, whether it was a tenth or whatever, I wasn't giving it to get. I was giving it to him. I was trusting him in my giving. I've known a lot of people who were really big givers and they end up mad when the <laughs> Sewing doesn't come back the way they thought it should. I knew of a man who actually kept track of how much he gave so he could give it to God and say, this is what you owe me. Wow. <laughs> That's not understanding who God is. God doesn't want to take things from us. He's trying to get everything to us. Part of our not taking is that we're not acting on what we believe he has said. So obviously Abraham not only believed God, but he also trusted him to keep his word. 
I think Yahweh God, which is what Abraham knew him as, was in part showing Abraham that he was not like the other gods. A lot of believers have a really bad image of who God is. Abraham had a really bad image of who God was. <laughs> and we have to remember that Abraham had no written documents to tell him what the true and living God was actually like. Abraham learned who God was through his experiences with God. And Yahweh God wasn't looking for Abraham to sacrifice what he loved the most in order to prove his own faithfulness or earn God's approval. This was an opportunity for God to show Abraham that not even the most precious of sacrifices were what he wanted from Abraham. God didn't want Abraham to look at his own sacrifices as a way of pleasing God, but God wanted Abraham to look to and trust in the God who had already proven himself faithful and trustworthy. This burnt offering was supposed to indicate that Abraham was completely dedicated to God. But what it actually did was show Abraham that God was completely dedicated to him. I believe that the pre-incarnate Christ and Father God, the up-close and personal covenant-keeping God, showed up and explained to Abraham what he had prophetically acted out because of what Jesus told the Jews in John chapter 8, um, verse 56. Jesus said this to the Jews, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast seen Abraham? And Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was... I am. And then they wanted to throw rocks at his head because he said, I am. I am the great I am. God must have explained to Abraham. He must have for Jesus to be able to say this. Now, the Old Testament doesn't tell us that God explained it. But there's probably a lot of things that happen that the Old Testament doesn't tell us about. <laughs> that doesn't mean it didn't. When I was looking to see how the Jewish people understand the story of Abraham, I went looking, and one of the things I found is that they are trying to rewrite the scripture so that Abraham actually does kill Isaac. They have found pieces and parts of parchment where they want to go now and say, no, this, all this foretelling, see, they don't see Jesus in that. All they see is a way to exterminate Jesus. So, I thought that was very interesting because it is so completely obvious that the Father was prophetically declaring, this is what will be. I believe that Jesus and the Father revealed to Abraham that he, Abraham himself, was a type and shadow of the true and living God, who was also a father. <laughs> the Jews never called him father. But yet this is what God is, is revealing to Abraham, that he's a father who loves with a father's love. The cultural understanding of the so-called gods at that time was that gods didn't actually like or love human beings. <laughs> human beings were servants or annoyances. They didn't actually see their gods as something that wanted anything to actually do with them. And if something was going wrong in their life, they believed that the God that they were worshiping and bowing down to was mad at them and that they would have to offer sacrifices as a means of soothing their anger and then to convince them to release favor. 
But God, like Abraham, was a father who also had to send his first son away from home. Abraham had Ishmael. He had to send him away. God had Adam. <laughs> he had to send him away out of the garden. God wanted Abraham to understand that he, God, understood what it was like to be a father. And like Abraham, God would have a son of promise too, Jesus. But this son would also be the Lamb of God, provided by God as the only acceptable offering and sacrifice for sin. And who would take our place and carry our sin into death. Our Father isn't looking for us to soothe his anger, because he's not mad, or to pay for his favor with sacrifice or surrender. God isn't looking to take things away from us. He's looking to give us himself and his life through the one sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. So what did Jesus think about sacrifice? Well, the first time the word sacrifice is used in the New Testament is in Matthew chapter 9, verse 13. This is Jesus hanging out with Matthew, the tax collector, <laughs> and other terrible sinners. <laughs> so the Pharisees asked Jesus' disciples to explain his choice of company. And this is what Jesus said. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is actually a quote from Hosea 6.6. And I have that for you in the ESV version. It says this, I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. This is exactly what God revealed to Abraham, that he is steadfast fatherly love. He is loyal love. He is unmerited love. Unmerited love. <laughs> that doesn't make sense to a human being, unmerited love, unless, of course, you're a parent. The day my daughter was born, I understood unmerited love. This little girl put me through days and days and days of hard labor. She broke my tailbone so that she could get out. I understood pain and suffering. <laughs> but when they put that baby in my arms, my brain said, how on earth can I love this baby so much? I would give my life for this baby. All she did was give me pain and suffering. <laughs> And she would for many years to come. <laughs> but I would still lay my life down for that baby. That's unmerited love. That's the love of our Father. He doesn't love us because we're good. He loves us because we're His. He loves us because He is good. This is what God revealed to Abraham that God is a God of steadfast, loyal, and unmerited love. The Hebrew word here for love is chesed, and we would translate it in the New Testament as grace. God desires and has always desired to deal with us by grace and through the true knowledge of God rather than by sacrifices, or by surrendering, or by dedicating ourselves to him through burnt offerings. In reality, God never wanted a whole bunch of sacrifices. 
That seems so obvious now, but there was a time that I wouldn't have believed that. He wanted to be in relationship with human beings through grace and through the proper and correct knowledge of who he is. God, our Father, God who is Yahweh Yirah, the one who provides, is the one who has provided through Jesus the only one sacrifice that is ever needed for sin. We can see this truth in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect, make complete those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have not ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. How I wish I had understood this truth 40 years ago, having once been cleansed. That was God's desire. One sacrifice, one cleansing available to everybody <laughs> at all times. That was God's true desire to cleanse us, to get rid of the sin problem once and for all, once and for all time. But I was always trying to get rid of sin. I was always going to altars and say, I'm sorry the way I am. <laughs> you should really fix me, God. <laughs> I didn't know he already had. <laughs> I was like the Israelites. I was always trying to get God to cleanse my nice white robe of righteousness. Because in my mind, I was always falling down and getting it dirty. <laughs> I thought I always needed to be cleansed. <laughs> Verse 3. And these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The old covenant system of dealing with sin didn't actually deal with sin the way they thought it did. It was a credit system that was put in place as a temporary fix. The Mosaic covenant was never meant to last forever. It was never meant to last forever. It's not enforced, but so many Christians are still trying to enforce it in their own lives. Verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. This is Jesus telling us how the Father felt about all those sacrifices. If he felt that way about those kinds of sacrifices, what does he think about us trying to become sacrifices and trying to surrender to God? Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. We know Jesus is talking about him becoming the sacrifice, but this, this applies to us. <laughs> this is the sacrifice he wants to live in here. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. He didn't desire it, and he took no pleasure in it. The Jews had a really hard time with this idea. You see, the, this, is, this book is written to the Hebrews. Those who came to Christ, those who were thinking about coming to Christ, and those who wanted nothing to do with Christ. The idea of letting go of Moses and the law was really hard. It was for me, too. <laughs> when I came into the understanding of grace, what? I don't have to make myself clean. I don't have to fast. I don't have to give. I don't have to. I don't have to. I don't have to. 
you're going to be happy with me just the way I am? That was very strange to them, just like it was to anybody who's been in church a really long time. <laughs> they believed God did want their sacrifices and offerings, even in addition to having Jesus. The believers today often fall into the same old covenant thinking, believing God really does want them to surrender themselves again, or to give him some kind of good works or religious works as sacrifices in order to gain his favor or at the very least, prove their own faithfulness or repentance. For example, years ago, I heard a woman on a Christian television show give a testimony of the power of praise and worship. Now, this was a very long time ago. She told a story filled with sorrow and pain. She had miscarried a child several times and didn't understand why God was allowing it to happen. Is that correct knowledge? No. <laughs> but she decided to give God a sacrifice of praise. So on the way home from the hospital, with her heart full of loss and pain, she stopped at a church, went to the altar, and proceeded to pour out praise and worship for several hours, in spite of how she felt. And according to her testimony, it was because of the sacrifice of praise and worship that God allowed her to get pregnant again and carry the child to term. The problem with this testimony is that this lady actually believed she earned God's pleasure and favor with what she did. Now, she didn't say it just that way, but that is what she believed. She believed that her sacrifice of praise had more persuasion and was more pleasing to God because of her pain. If anything, she persuaded her own heart that God was actually good and only good, even if she didn't understand the circumstances. The truth is God still doesn't want us to offer him offerings and sacrifices as a means of obtaining his favor and blessing. So much of the church believes if we praise God 24 hours a day, seven days a week, God will bring revival to America. Does it say that anywhere in scripture? <laughs> no. What happens when we give lots of time to praising God and spending time with God? We benefit. God is not changed. God is not persuaded differently. God is not mad. God is not keeping anything away from us. So all of these works are not changing God. All of these works change us, not God. Many times over the years, I have heard from people who were sick that they believed that their worship was more acceptable than healthy people. If I'm sick and I still worship God, that means my praise and worship is more valuable to God than the person whose life is going right, and they praise and worship God. We have weird ideas in the church that somehow what we do ingratiates ourselves to God. Our offerings, our sacrifices, our giving. No. Nope, there's only one sacrifice that has ingratiated us to God, and his name is Jesus. <laughs> He's the only acceptable sacrifice for sin and for favor and for blessing. You don't get it any other way. 
chapter 10, verse 7. Then I said, this is Jesus speaking, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said the above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, even though these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first covenant in order to establish the second covenant. And I added the words covenant. Verse 10. And by that will, by God's will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We have been sanctified. We have been set apart. That's what sanctified means. Set apart unto God like a bride is set apart unto her husband. We are sanctified by what Jesus has done and not by anything we can do. We are not sanctified or made holy and acceptable by our Bible reading offering. Bible reading is very good. I encourage it. It doesn't make us holy. It doesn't make us acceptable. It doesn't make us blessable. It's just really good for us. (laughs) And our tithing offering isn't going to ingratiate us to God and are going to church offering. Some people think going to church is a sacrifice. Oh no, I have to go to church or God will be mad. No. (laughs) And some, of course, believe that if we worship, that offering is what makes us blessable. We are sanctified, made holy, and made his. That's how I always understand holiness. Holiness, sanctified, means his period. I'm his bride. I'm his child. I'm his. That's what holiness is. And he made me all those things. I don't make myself that. We are sanctified, made holy, and made his through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. For all people, for all time, for all blessings, and for all favor. It is all ours through faith in his offering, not in our own offerings. Verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. And in the same way, believers are often trying to gain God's favor and blessing by offering themselves in dedication and surrender, like a burnt offering, and by offering God worship and good deeds. We keep offering the same powerless offerings, thinking God is accepting them as currency to gain his approval. And favor. Verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. This is an extraordinary truth. Jesus is not continuing to deal with my sins or your sins or anybody's sins. He has dealt with all sin for all time, for all people. And to prove it, he sat down. (laughs) I'm not dealing with sin anymore. (laughs) There are no more offerings for sin. There are no more offerings to get God to bless us. There is no more offerings to get God to accept us. And there is no more offerings to get God to favor us. Now, Jesus will definitely deal with and correct our thinking and believing. That's what he's busy doing most of the time, is just dealing with how we think and believe. He is always bringing us into a more correct and true understanding of who he is. But he's not dealing with sin. Verse 14. For by one offering, he, Jesus, has perfected forever them that are sanctified. 
This is why we don't need to offer sacrifices and offerings as a means of attaining God's favor, blessing, and approval. We have already been made perfect and complete in our spirit. We have a brand new spirit and a brand new heart, and they're both filled with Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is the only reason that we are blessed and favored. Jesus is the only reason the promises of God are ours, not because we surrender to God's will in our life, but because Jesus, according to the will of the Father, surrendered to the enemy of death. Jesus didn't have to surrender to the Father. The Father was never his enemy, but Jesus did have to surrender to the power of death so that the power of sin would be utterly defeated. It is by this, the offering and sacrifice of the body of Jesus that all of the Old Testament offerings and sacrifices, including tithing, have been done away with. I'm still a tither. Don't, don't get worried. I'm not saying I don't believe trusting God with your giving. But all the old offerings, they were blessed if they tithed. I'm blessed because Jesus tithed. <laughs> Jesus fulfilled all of the law. I am blessed because Jesus tithed. But when I trust God and God says give, that's when I give. I'm trusting him, not my giving. All of the Old Testament sacrifices are done and over with. Jesus fulfilled all the sacrifices and offerings that were necessary in order for a believer to receive all the benefits of our salvation. So, does that mean there are no more offerings and sacrifices for us to give? No. <laughs> but they just have a different purpose. Hebrews 13, 15, and 16 say this. Through him, through Jesus then, we may always offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips giving thanks to his name. Oh, and by the way, <laughs> do not be forgetful of doing good and of fellowship, for God is well pleased with such sacrifices. Praise, worship, and thanksgiving are still what we offer or bring to God as we fellowship with Him. We no longer come to God in an effort to make Him happy with us <laughs> because He's already happy with us because He's already happy with the Jesus who lives in us. He's already happy with that sacrifice. In Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2, it says this. This is the Jubilee translation. Be ye therefore imitators of God as dear children, and walk in charity, which is unmerited love, even as the Christ also has loved us and has given himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. I chose this particular translation because of the word charity. The King James Bible translators, when they were looking for an appropriate word, a word that would convey unmerited love, we didn't have one. The closest word they could find that would instill the kindness and gentleness and the caring and the unmeritedness of this love was charity. True charity was love that lays down its life. True charity was love says, I will love you because you are made in the image of God, <laughs> not because you've done something good for me. It was the only word they could come up with that conveyed the absolute freeness of God's love and kindness. 
for mankind. Agape love is unearned, unmerited love. It is self-sacrificing love. It is loyal love. It is God's kind of love. And when we choose to live like Jesus and walk in charity, walk in agape love, walk in unearned, unmerited love, we become a sweet-smelling sacrifice to our Father too. We smell just like Jesus. Under the old covenant, sacrifices were continually required to make a worshiper acceptable to God and to deal with sin. But under the new covenant, Jesus fulfilled every sacrifice, and through his blood, every requirement has been fully met. There really is nothing left for us to do but believe. Believe that Jesus makes us perfect and acceptable to our Father. Believe that he is our life. Believe that he is everything that we need. Under the old covenant, sacrifices were required. But under the new covenant, our sacrifices are simply the love and power of Jesus at work in us and at work through us. Our Heavenly Father isn't looking for us to sacrifice the most precious things in our lives to prove our love and faithfulness. He's not looking for us to surrender our lives to him as if he wants to take them from us. <laughs> our Father sent Jesus to prove to us that we are the most precious things in his life. And Jesus surrendered his body to death so that he could give us his kind and quality of eternal life. God's not trying to get things from us. He's trying to convince us of the truth that he has already granted us everything we need for life and godliness based on Jesus alone. Romans 8.32 says this, He, God the Father, that spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Freely, unmeritedly. Father, we thank you for your word, that it's true that you are who you have revealed yourself to be. You are the Father who loves us because we're yours. <laughs> Even though we have caused suffering and pain, Father God, you love us because we're yours. We bear your image. And now we bear your life as well. Father God, we thank you that we no longer have to make ourselves acceptable. We no longer have to earn favor with you. Like with my child, she can have whatever she wants. <laughs> she can have whatever she wants, whenever she wants, because she is my child. And that's who we are to you. You say to us, child, you can have whatever you want, whenever you want it, as long as it's good for you. <laughs> Thank you, Father God, that you have done everything through the Lord Jesus Christ. And all that you ask us to do is Give to others what you have given to us, unmerited love. In Jesus' name, amen.